on today's Compassion Radio. The attacks have continued. The first 48 hours of violence were just horrific. There were over 150, 60 that were killed in those first two days. There were hundreds that were injured. There were probably 70,000 total that were displaced. Wow. And there are still 35, 40 bodies in the morgues of tribal men and women that we are not able to collect. It's just horrific. Well, friends, back on Compassion Radio today, finally. It's been a long time. I've been trying to get this interview worked out for a number of months, but a lot of stuff's come up in between that's been life or death important that's kept our guest away from us physically, yet we prayed for him incessantly. And that is John Podiety of Bibles for the World, our year-end partner for the past number of years in Bible projects. And that begins now. This is the season where we gear up for a special Bible project with Compassion Radio. And John, I'm really glad to finally get you back on the phone with me. Oh, it's great to reconnect with you here, Bram. Um, yeah, I'm glad we have been able to stay in touch a little bit by text, but this is great to connect and phone and be able to talk through some of the things in some detail. You and I have touched base as you're in an airport here or there, and you have gone back and forth to the States, to India, to other parts of the world a zillion times, it seems like, in the past year. And since we last sat down and really talked hard about what God was doing with your people and in your people— a lot has changed and a whole lot hasn't. It was at the very height of the persecutions against the Christians of Manipur, which is your home territory, mm-hmm. that we left off the last conversation. So we got to backtrack a little bit here and explain again to our listeners what happened last year that got buried in the rest of the news, but is a big deal for the Christians of Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. Well, on May 3rd, the uh, Hill Tribals, who are predominantly Christians, held a peaceful rally protesting some of the uh, political and economically driven moves by the dominant people group, the Métis, um, of the state of Manipur. And the Métis have been uh, traditionally Hindu, though some of them are reverting to their animistic religion these days. But when the violence erupted, it was then when I talked with you, it was only uh, in a matter of 48 hours, really, uh, May 4th to 6th, that violence was unleashed against the, uh, the Christian tribals and those who had homes in the valley area, in the Meite territory, as it were. They were attacked. Uh, homes were looted, vandalized, and then many of them uh, set on fire. And the tribals you know, ran for their lives just fled for their lives, some of them just wearing pajamas and T-shirts and slippers and, and, and ran to the nearest army camp or any place they could find safety and shelter. Before we continue with this, I want to make sure our listeners understand that the Mete, the dominant people group in the valleys of Manipur State, are fairly well aligned politically with the dominant government party now. So Narendra Modi, who is currently the president or prime minister, I guess, of the nation of India, comes from that particular group. The BJP political party. And so we have the same party ruling at the national level and now also at the state level. And they call it the double barrel government. And it certainly has been unleashed as a as a reign of terror against our people. And it's not just the Christians across India that are running for their lives in many districts of India. It's been a lot of the Muslim communities and other minority religious groups. It is a very much a nationalistic one religion movement 
not unlike some other nationalist party movements around the world that are focusing on leveraging the voting base of one religious group against another. So it seems to be a wave, a tide around the world that it's washed on your shores, so to speak, with violence. And the reason that it's so important that the Hill Country tribes and the Métis have some kind of accommodation is because, you know, this is a complex multicultural district of India. It's not a small place. And the Hill tribes, the ones that we are so concerned about, they're important to us in the West, or should be, not just because they are a minority group and are oppressed in general, because they are the Christian root and the taproot, really, of all of eastern India in the areas just outside of Burma and southwest China. It is a deeply entrenched Christian community and a missionary movement that birthed what has become your organization, Bibles for the World. So it is one of the few organizations in the world that is focusing on bringing the gospel to every nation in every language in the printing and distribution of the Word of God that really is uh, rooted in the cultural transformation of the gospel over the past few generations. That's not from the West. You are an Eastern ministry that has fingers in all kinds of countries, but has a very strong presence here in the United States, and your home office for Bibles for the World is in Colorado Springs. So you are truly a world ministry. I want our listeners to understand that. How has it played out, John, between the time that the Métis are attacking your people, your churches, your pastors? Well, it has been five and a half months now, going on closing on six, and the attacks have continued. The first 48 hours of violence were just horrific. There were over 150, 60 that were killed in those first two days. There were hundreds that were injured. There were probably 70,000 total that were displaced. Wow. And there are still 35, 40 bodies in the morgues and in fall of tribal men and women that we are not able to collect, mm. that the, the tribal is not able to collect, and they're just rotting in the morgues. It's just horrific. They cannot guarantee safe passage even for a team to go in and collect those bodies. And even despite the fact that the central government has sent in the army, uh, now I think forty-five to 50,000 troops are in there. They still cannot guarantee safe passage. Um, they were able to, uh, early days, put together an evacuation of the tribals who were in the valley, in the Métis-dominated area, move them out in sort of an exchange, as it were, because there were some Métis in the tribal areas. And so that exchange happened. But beyond that, they've just been there almost like a, a peacekeeping force or an attempt at that. But unfortunately, we still see attacks on the uh, tribal villages. Wow. There's different front lines, about five different ones in the state surrounding the Central Valley. And even our own mission headquarters, our hospital, our seminary, these are all seven and a half to eight miles from that front line. And we just know if at some point if they burst through that, the core of our mission work in, in India is going to be attacked as, as we've seen other missions and so many churches attacked and burned and destroyed closer to the uh, Infall Valley. So we're dealing with a multi-layered cultural, religious ethnic conflict that's being goaded on by national forces. I wouldn't say it's a well-choreographed attack. It was not well-organized, and yet it was unleashed, and no one's really managing the after-effects of this thing. You are responding as best you can without trying to overreact, and you've been encouraging the way of peace for your people. The other complicating uh, factor for me as we think about what to pray for in the conflict you're facing there in India is that 
your Christian churches, the ones you've helped to plant over the past 50, 70 years that your father dedicated himself to bringing the gospel to while he was alive, mm-hmm. includes the Metes. Oh, yeah. And there were dozens, if not hundreds, of fellowships across those territories of worshiping believers, your brothers and sisters in Christ, that are suddenly stuck behind, quote-unquote, enemy lines in their own communities. Right. How have you reconciled this, and what have you as a ministry been doing to try to bring together the body of Christ, no matter which side of the line they ended up on? Yes, you know, um, as you mentioned, we have been working among the Métis people for well over 35 years. My father, as well as my uncle, had just dedicated his life to, to these people. We've been blessed to be able to plant 17 churches among them and to lead and guide some of their young men to become pastors, wow. supporting them through our seminary. Many of them were just uh, cast out from their homes when they made the decision to follow Christ. And uh, you know, I personally have probably had a hand in some way or form, either raising money or buying materials or bringing materials or bringing work teams to these sites to build probably more than half of these 17 churches we planted. And there's been concerted effort by other Christian missions and churches. And uh, estimates were that now the Mete had reached about 5% Christian. Wow. And that would be about 100,000 of their 1.8 to 2 million population. And uh, we feel that there's also something of a backlash there that they're seeing, oh boy, this Christian population is growing. This is just one more reason that we need to unleash this ethnic cleansing of the people because we, you know, they're, they're starting to win our people over with the love of Christ and the truth of the gospel. Yeah, and that would be plenty of reason for those who are trafficking in hate to want to take advantage of the disruption. Mm -hmm. So what have you done, and where have your people gone? Well, from day one, of course, you know, our hospital swung into action treating the victims of the violence. And then as the internally displaced people were being evacuated into relief camps in our area, we have uh, 106 relief camps within a 30-mile radius 106 of relief camps. How many now, people does that represent? Uh, about 45,000 came to our district, wow. our area, where our mission is headquartered. And so, so many of them fled their homes with just the clothes on their back, didn't even grab their insulin or their blood pressure meds or their heart meds and other types of things. So, we just started providing all of those medicines for free out of our pharmacy and just started requisitioning more from neighboring state because our traditional supply chain was totally disrupted. And we used to just, you know, an hour and a half away, could go down and get medicines from our distributors in infall, but it's now become a three-day journey, sourcing in a one state, traveling through a third state, and, you know, back in through the back wow. roads into our area. And it's uh, now a three-day journey to do what used to be a you know quick day trip down to the valley. And uh, well, you see, you've got 106 different camps mm-hmm. and 45 some thousand people that puts them in the hundreds per camp. Yes, obviously these are not well provisioned camps, apparently. So how are you taking care of the needs in each of these little? I don't call them little, but smaller than grand scale refugee camps. What are you doing to organize? to provide services, to rebuild communities for those who have stumbled into these camps. Yes, these are really makeshift camps, you know. 
um, taking over a school, a community hall, whatever. And as each of the villages tries to step up and do their part to help in, in sharing the burden, um, you know, our Christian brothers and sisters. So every village put up a camp of some sort. Some can take five, six hundred and some can only take a couple hundred. We are even housing them in our seminary dormitory, mm-hmm. men's dormitory, uh, capacity of 120. We had 180 to 200 in there until our seminary had to open, and we vacated one floor and cut it down to 120. And it's been like that. Every village has stepped up to it, and we have been providing mattresses, uh, mosquito nets, uh, blankets, um, you know, raincoats as the rainy season hit in June for the workers who were working the relief camps and the teams, the volunteers trying to provide for them. But we've provided uh, now it's well over 100 tons of relief materials, starting with food, rice, dal, potatoes, onions, uh, cooking oil, things that they need, as well as uh, non-food essential items, um, Everything, including toothbrushes and toothpaste and soap and trying to keep hygienic conditions sanitary enough because in these very congested conditions in the relief camps, you know, diseases can spread very, very quickly. Yeah. Even for the women, sanitary products and mm-hmm. and continuing to just serve them also at our hospital throughout. We've done numerous surgeries, treating all kinds of diseases that some of them brought into the camps or some that are spreading in the camps right now oh, no. with the uh, rainy season and the mosquitoes that come with it. So there's been, you know, viral fever, typhoid and cholera. Uh because of poor available drinking water, things like that. So it's just kind of been on nonstop. Compassion Radio will continue to keep bringing you encouragement from the Word, inspiring stories from the front lines of faith, and awesome opportunities to make a difference for the kingdom around the world. But we need your help right now to continue doing just that. Please take a moment today to consider how you might help us to accomplish our unique media ministry and mission. Just visit our website, CompassionRadio.com, or call our toll-free order line, 1-800-868-2478. And note our new mailing address, which is P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. Again, that's Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. And now, back to the broadcast. We've done numerous surgeries, treating all kinds of diseases that some of them brought into the camps or some that are spreading in the camps right now with the uh, rainy season and the mosquitoes that come with it. So there's been, you know, viral fever, typhoid and cholera Uh. because of poor available drinking water, things like that. So it's just kind of been on nonstop. I mean, we've had over 35 baby deliveries in our hospital coming out of the relief camp. So we've been providing all of these services for free. And of course, our hospital, which usually runs at a you know break-even basis operationally from its local income, has just you know been really hit by this. So we've been helping, as Bible's rule, helping subsidize their salaries so they can keep the, the, the team of doctors and nurses and other technicians and all the support staff, you know, all employed through this time. So it's been just hitting us from all sides. Sure seems like it. You sound pretty exhausted each time I talk to you about the last phase of the relief work and trying to reboot other things. 
It's important, I think, for our listeners to understand, too, that Bibles for the World was not designed to be a dependent organization, as if it was only supported by gifts from the West to supply the salaries and needs of ministers who are just doing things like establishing churches. You designed from the ground up, your dad understanding Western economies and things, to be self-sustaining, to build a service that would be able to build economy, not drain it in the countries where you work. And so you take it to the very edge, though. There's no fat in your budgets. I know that much. No. So when you raise money for projects, they're raising money to be able to apply directly to that thing for that period of time. And now, of course, you've got to redirect so much resources just into caring for humanity around you. How are you juggling all these budgeting issues? It has been a challenge, and we've had to set aside some of our longer-term scripture projects and initiatives and really do a push for these relief efforts, the medical and the food relief. And uh, even now, I I think I mentioned to you, I was able to travel to India in mid-July and stayed there for about a month. Mm -hmm. We went into the neighboring state. It's not safe for us to fly into the the Imphal airport, the the capital. And so as we uh, monitored the situation from nearby, we found a window and when things had quieted down a bit, we were able to go in there for four days and see things firsthand. And during that time, of course, realized that in addition to the medical health care, the physical needs, the food, all of that, there was a need spiritually hmm. as we went and visited some relief camps. You know, even the pastors and the elders who had also fled from their homes were right there with their displaced fellow villagers. They, they had left their Bibles behind. Yeah, or had them ripped from their hands. Yeah, fortunately, we had some stock in some of the different languages because a lot of sister tribes and different languages in that region. And so we were able to give out about 4,000 Bibles that we had on hand and also purchase another 700 so that we could at least provide those to the pastors and church elders and kind of the leaders in each of the relief camps. Even as we were doing that, there came the request immediately, we need more, mm-hmm. because different pockets, you know, even around the state and in neighboring states where the displaced people have fled to, um, there's needs there. And so that's something that we're right now working on, actually, in, in Faith in God, have uh, started a, a reprinting in one of the major languages of the region. And that's something that here we're trying to get accomplished and delivered here before the end of the year. You have some experience in planning for and sending in appropriate spiritual support in refugee camp situations. You and I talked about going into Turkey a couple of years ago to sit Mm -hmm. with people who are actually reaching out to the refugees coming in from Syria, Iran, Iran, and from Iraq. There were so many people pouring into Turkey and the relief camps there that was being overlooked by the world. You actually went and spent time there and figured out, I can get the Word of God to people who are actually building churches right now because they wanted to. They weren't being forced this by you or being introduced to it. They were begging you because God had already come alive there and had invigorated so many young people, even women, which was very rare for that society, Mm -hmm. to step out and reach out to the people in their communities and start fellowships within the relief camps. So that was already going on, and you and I were planning to go there, and then COVID shut everything down with world travel at the time. But that work hasn't stopped there, and you've been working hard to supply the need 
in internally displaced camps around the world. So this is not unfamiliar territory for you. No, no, no. And now God has seen fit for you to be able to do that thing with your own people in your own territory. It's got to be whiplash for you to have to think in terms of, oh, this has come home to roost right where I am. Here, God was preparing us for this. Exactly. That's what, at the time that we got involved with Turkey, and then also with Ukraine, mm-hmm. and the Ukrainian refugees pouring out into Poland and Romania and provided a lot of scriptures there through the relief camps and relief efforts. It was all part of the training. Never never at that time did we realize this is going to hit home right in our, our home area mm-hmm. in this way. So, you know, we're at least prepared and helping our leadership there to think through this. And then also to address it and to take effective action in this situation. So we thank God for that. It's tough to thank God in these times of troubles. It's it's tough to find forgiveness, that's mm. for sure. Amen. And when the attacks on your people are happening and the churches that you've built, and even now, you know, knowing the believers among the Mayday people, knowing them, many of them very personally, how they've been silenced or they are just forced to lay low and just have asked, please don't communicate with us because they will be suspected in yeah. some way of siding with you. But just know that we're okay. And so I have a really sporadic text message communication with a few of the top leaders over there. But it's it's amazing that they're how strong they're holding to their faith, and that's that's been encouraging. It, it gives us further motivation and inspiration to continue to do what we can to uh, to minister into this uh, this turmoil and to also continue to pray for peace for the area. Amen to that. Tell me, John, how does that kind of faith work itself out in an internally displaced people's camp like you're dealing with right now? What do they do in those camps to keep hope alive? Well, it has been amazing. I mean, it has been whole villages just displaced like that and and relocated into a community hall or a school campus. So they do have their structure there in terms of a pastor, the church elders, and the the leadership. So that's uh, continuing to function in their own language. We have about 14, 16 different languages spoken in the relief camps. Fortunately, they have those structures in place and and people who are fluent in the language, because while some of our people can kind of follow or understand the other languages, not all of them are prepared to minister at that level of fluency is required to the people. And so we're just there to kind of continue to encourage them to continue to meet, worship, trying to minister to those who have suffered the traumas of this violence. A lot of that work happening also at the hospital, you know, with the counseling that goes on, not only to those who have been injured or who have come for medical treatment, but to the families that come with them. So it's really put all of us into action on levels, kind of stretching our gifts and skills beyond what we knew we had. I imagine so. Well, every conflict, it seems, around the world tends to unleash traumas in unique ways because of the socioeconomic and political situations where they are or the mix of people who are affected. So in your case, in the hill tribes, in this multicultural context of Northeast India, where are you seeing the the strongest impacts of trauma and who's being hurt the worst? What's been really the toughest thing to accept in this whole ethnic cleansing is has been the violence against women and children. Because our tribal roots, pre-Christianity, we were warring tribes, we were headhunters, but we had a code of honor. The war was between the men, and you didn't attack the women. You know, women weren't raped 
kids weren't attacked or killed. But in this uh, unleashing of terror, we have seen just some horrific things, violence and rapes against women, even kids. I mean, seven, 10 years old, five years old, mm. being butchered for, for mm. no reason, just because they were there. And even elderly women. And then later there claims the lies that have gone out saying, oh, she was carrying a, an automatic weapon or something. It's like, I doubt that a 75-year-old woman was, you know, <laughs> engaged in this conflict. Yeah. See, the government shut down the internet, and so only those who were going to put out the party line, as it were, were allowed access to the few points of internet connection in the Department of Information and Public Relations. And so they could get online and file their stories. My conversation with John Podiatic of Bibles for the World continues tomorrow as we get the latest updates on the religious persecution raging right now in the Indian state of Manipur. I hope you'll tune in then. In the meantime, I hope you'll take seriously our challenge to support Compassion Radio and our amazing partners around the world. We need to send a support gift to assist the relief efforts for all the Christians in Manipur, and we need to do it soon. Can you make a generous gift right now to help us do that? Compassion Radio is still the radio voice of the global church, and that's completely due to the Lord's provision through you. Give online today at CompassionRadio.com or call us at 1-800-868-2478 or write us P.O. Box 77160, Corona, California, 92877. We need you, friend, so contact us today.